Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. I love this because God just starts off again. He's like, okay, let's go back to the start. All right. This is what I had already told you before. Now go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Wise move this time, Jonah. Okay. Given the history. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That's a a symbol of humility, of, of intentionally humbling themselves before God. It's a sign of mourning over their sin. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Father, help us today as we dig into this passage. Help us as we try to unpack this ancient story and discover what it means for us right now. Push us and challenge us today. Let your word be clear. Let it be effective today. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Remarkable story that we see here. Okay. The transformation of Nineveh. This revival. Right. This great awakening that breaks out in the city of Nineveh. Is nothing short of miraculous. They were all out enemies of Israel. It says they were known for their violence. For their wickedness. And yet these people experience a spiritual revival and all of their hearts turn towards God. This is a miracle for Nineveh on par with the miracle of a man being swallowed by a great fish and then living to preach about it later. Okay, it's on par with this for the entire city known for its ways in this direction to pivot, to turn, to have a reversal of heart and to turn their hearts towards God. And through that experience, the mercy and the compassion of God. This is miraculous. It's miraculous. To the earliest readers, it would have blown their minds because they knew all too well the reputation of Nineveh. 
Now, it's really interesting in its historical context, too, because if you lay it in, in its time frame of when this is taking place, the prophet Jonah was contemporaries with another prophet named Amos. And Jonah was sent to Nineveh, which would be God's enemies, right, as far as Israel is concerned. They are the enemy of Israel, and they are the enemy of God in their minds. Jonah goes to them, preaches, and the entire city turns their hearts towards God, and a revival, this great awakening happens there. Nineveh believed God, it says there in that verse. Incredible. Now put that up against Amos, Jonah's contemporary. Amos wasn't called to Nineveh. Amos was called to preach to Israel. Amos was called to preach to God's own people. In Nineveh, we see the enemies, but with Israel, with the people of God, we see God's own children literally, right, literally finding their origin in the miraculous will of God through Abraham and Sarah, okay? These, certainly these will listen. If Nineveh listened, certainly they will listen. Their hearts are already cultivated with this love for God, right? But instead we see the opposite. Israel responds with a stubborn kind of pride, taking pride in their identity as the children of God, and their hearts refuse to turn. Their hearts refuse to turn. And we see a fall that takes place as a result of that. Also, we see it back in that passage I was referencing from Matthew. Matthew uh, chapter 12. And when Jesus is being pushed about giving a sign to show, are you really from God or is this power we're seeing uh, from somewhere else, right? Who are you? Who has sent you? Where, where are you from? And he says, they say, give us a sign to prove it. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But now one greater than Jonah is here. So we see this contrast, God's own people. They didn't listen to his prophet Amos, and now they're not listening to his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, wake up, one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. So interesting. So interesting. As we take a step back and we look at this story of Nineveh and this great awakening, this revival that breaks out in the city, we take a step back and we look at at what is it that's the root of this? What causes this kind of revival that happens? There are three things for us to look at today, even as we try to apply it to our own context and to our own setting today. Don't we want to see that kind of turning of hearts, that kind of mass turning of hearts, that that united turning of hearts to God? Don't we want to see that in our own town here? Don't we want to see that in the relationships that we have, that we're engaged with every day on campus, in our work, all over this community? Don't we want to see that? 
if we do what, what, three things that we pull from this story that have to happen for us to be able to see that. And the first is this. There has to be repenting. Number one, repent. Repent. And we're like, yeah, exactly. Those people out there, they need to repent. No, that's not where it starts. That's not where it starts. Nineveh's revival begins with Jonah's repentance. Nineveh's revival begins with Jonah's repentance. We see this prophet of God that was running in the opposite direction. And then through this incredible encounter, he repents. His heart turns back to God and he begins to live in obedience again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, it says. And then in verse 3, it says, And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. And here Jonah comes into Nineveh, this man fresh off of an encounter with God, probably still smelling like the dumpster at Red Lobster, let's be honest, okay? Comes walking in there and clearly has experienced a transformation, a turn in his life. A turn in his life. In order for there to be repentance around us, there absolutely has to begin with repentance within It has to start with us. It has to start with you. It has to start with you. To repent literally means to turn. And that's what happens in Jonah's life. There's a turn. There's a pivot. There's a reversal. A clear and unmistakable transformation in his direction. An undeniable change that comes because of his encounter with God. What we see in Jonah, when he shows up in Nineveh, is a dead man who has been resurrected. We see a dead man who has been resurrected. That is the sign of Jonah into the depths and raised back up. Into the depths and raised back up. For people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they need to see the resurrection of you. A dead life raised to new life because of the grace of Jesus. Maybe you've been wondering over the past three weeks why the video that we show at the beginning as we get ready to come into the message uh, has to do with baptism. Maybe you look at that and you're like, well, what does baptism have to do with the story of Jonah? I don't quite get it. Okay, there's water, but other than that, what's going on? Okay, it's because baptism is the symbol of the dead life resurrected. That's what baptism symbolizes. That's why when we go into the water, we're taken down beneath the surface. And then we're raised back up. We die to our old lives through the death of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we are buried in the grave with him. And we are raised back up into new life with him. That's what baptism represents. It's this bold sign and proclamation that I was dead and now I'm alive. This is a resurrected life. It's a public declaration of what Jesus Christ has done within us, raised us to life. We're having a baptism service in a few weeks. If you want to be a part of that, you need to be a part of that. All right. 
you need to be there. And if you have not made this public declaration, you're a follower of Jesus, but you've not made this public declaration, talk to me and, and, and you need to be a part of this, okay? You need to be a part of this. It's a powerful experience and it's a powerful statement that I'm a follower of Jesus. I was dead and now I am alive. It's April 27th. It's for, for a lot of the students, it'll probably be the last Sunday that you're with us before the summer. And we're going to have a great celebration afterwards. Come and be with us for that, okay? It's this sign and this symbol of a resurrected life. And that's why we use that clip at the beginning. You see going under and being raised back up. It's this clear sign of repentance. Jonah's turning point became Nineveh's turning point. Okay, and Nineveh's revival began with Jonah's repentance. Repentance is quite literally the turning point. This confession becomes the catalyst for renewal and for new life. Revival always begins with a remnant, and Christ is exalted in our humility. We have to repent first. We have to repent. First, to let our hearts be turned to God. Sometimes the culture that we live in feels like it's an environment of hostility towards Christianity. So we think, how can a revival, how can an awakening ever happen here? Because there's this environment of hostility towards Christianity, right? But here's the deal. The greatest obstacle to revival and renewal in a place is not an environment of hostility towards Christianity. The greatest obstacle is often a culture of prideful Christianity. A culture of prideful Christianity. That is the danger. That is the real danger. That is the real obstacle to renewal. And so our response is to repent, to ask the Holy Spirit to point out where that is true in our lives and to deal with it in us, to deal with it in us, to let the grace of Jesus that rescued us and saved us and justified us continue to shape us into his likeness, continue to lead us into this humble relationship with Jesus. I am not sure which is more tragic, the person who has yet to realize their desperate need for grace or the person who has forgotten their desperate need for grace. That is a danger within Christianity. A danger within Christianity. To fall into pride. What is the original sin? It's pride. It's pride. Adam and Eve choosing themselves over God to elevate themselves instead of being humble. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out where that's true in your life and to deal with it and to bring you and to bring me into a relationship of repentance where our hearts are turned in humility. Our hearts are turned in humility. There's a... There's a a, a folk singer, songwriter kind of guy from the 70s. His name was Keith Green. Anybody ever heard of Keith Green? 
couple of people. All right. Keith Green was like this folk singer slash worship leader. Okay. Best, that's, that's, a, that's a great combination, isn't it? Okay. So imagine like Bob Dylan filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. He also had a sweet beard and fro combo. Okay. Which is bonus. All right. Awesome. Keith Green. But he said this. He said, so many people are asleep in the night, but the church can't do anything about it because we're asleep in the light. Asleep in the light. For a great awakening to take place, the first thing that needs to happen is those of us who are asleep in the light need to wake up. Wake up. Wake up. We see Nineveh's revival begins with Jonah's repentance. And we have to do the same. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to repent? Are you asleep in the light? Have you forgotten your desperate need for grace? Have you become prideful in your place with God? Where do you need to repent? Let that sit for a second. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us. Nineveh's revival begins with Jonah's repentance, and the same will be true for us. We'll see an awakening when we wake up from being asleep in the light. Okay? It begins our own repentance. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. The next piece that will be important for us, if we want to see change and renewal in our community around us. The next piece is this. We, we have to be people of prayer, okay? First we repent, and then we pray. We have to invest in praying for our community because prayer is the infrastructure of revival. Prayer is the culture of awakening, okay? We have to be invested in that. God challenges his people through another prophet, Jeremiah, in in chapter 29. He tells them that when they have been taken into captivity, which seems like the end, and it seems like they, they should be resisting and they should treat their captives as their enemies, right? But what God tells them to do in that moment is something different. It is something shocking. He says this. He says, plant gardens and build houses. Put your roots down and pray for the city. Pray for the peace of the city, he says. And pray that the city that you are in right now, where you are planted here and now, pray that this city will flourish. And pray that as my people, you will be a key part of the flourishing of the community around you. Wow. 
If God says that to Israel when they're taken into captivity by their enemies, then shouldn't we do that for our neighbors? Shouldn't we do that for our neighbors in this community that we call home, in this place that we love? We need to invest in prayer. We need to invest in prayer and to pray for the flourishing of this community. There are two ways that we do that as a church that I'm going to invite you to be a part of. Number one, every other Friday morning, every other Friday morning, we have a prayer walk that we do. Okay, right now it's a pretty small little group and that's okay if it stays that way. All right. But I invite you to come and to be a part of that. We meet at seven o'clock in the morning. Half of you just quit. Okay. (laughs) We meet at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, We park in the parking lot behind Vimela's Curry Blossom Cafe. Okay. Which is on the west end of Franklin Street. We come around. We meet in the courtyard area that's right there in front of her restaurant. And then we walk up and down Franklin Street. We walk up Franklin Street and we pray. We walk onto campus and we pray. Okay, this is our home. This is the place where God has planted us and we are committed to praying for the flourishing of this community. And we pray for Vimela's Curry Blossom Cafe, that it would flourish there. We pray for our friend Kara who runs the bagel bar and we pray that that would flourish. We pray for our friend Miss Robin who runs Merits and we pray that that would flourish. We pray for our friend Paul who owns the Varsity Theater, who runs the Varsity. And we pray that Paul would be able to mark our entrance into this place to a, a, to a spike in flourishing for him, okay? We pray that we will continue to be a blessing to him and that every time he thinks of us, he will be blessed even by the thought of it, that we are bringing blessing into his life and helping him flourish, okay? This isn't a self-centered kind of God bless me, but praying for the blessing of the community and the flourishing of the community and the peace and protection of the community. We want to do that. We want to do that. So we invite you to join us, okay? Prayer walk, seven o'clock every other Friday morning. This Friday, we're going to do it so you can come and be with us if you want. Another way that we're inviting you to do that is this. We have a prayer map that's going to be on the wall when you leave here, right as soon as you come up out of the hallway, out of the theater. There's a prayer map on the wall. And you're going to notice that it's of downtown and, and campus, Okay? The reason that it's not an entire map of Chapel Hill is because we're not in this by ourselves. We're a part of a collection of churches that are doing this together, that are joining together to pray for our entire community, okay? And, and, and a part of a collection of believers and other churches that are joining in with this. And so we are, are, have been given downtown and onto campus, okay? And so when you go out, um, actually, you have a card in your seat, probably. If you don't, you can get one when you go out. And it says, get on the map, okay? We want you to take a street or a place that's referenced on the map and to pray for it, to commit to pray for it. Maybe it's a place where you walk by every day, okay? Maybe it's going to have to be more intentional for you, and you're going to claim uh, a, a place you're not very often, but you're going to start walking around that neighborhood or driving through that neighborhood and praying for that neighborhood, okay? There's a map, and then there's a list of streets and places on the wall out there. Sign up by a place, and then write it on this card so you can remember to pray, all right? We want to be part of that bigger picture of a community of Christians that are praying together for the flourishing of this community. 
We are a very small corner of the kingdom represented here in Chapel Hill. And we want to be a part of that bigger picture. Join us in that. So we repent and we pray. And then the third thing that we do is this. We share. We repent. We get our hearts turned back to God. We ask him to deal with our pride. And we understand that it's not just an environment of hostility towards Christianity. That's an obstacle. An even deeper obstacle is our own culture of prideful Christianity. So we repent. And then we pray. We understand that's the infrastructure and the culture of revival. And so we pray for this place where we've been planted. The third thing is we share. We share. We have to be willing to speak boldly about the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. Jonah spoke from a place of authentic authority, didn't he? They believed him. Even though he sets up in the middle of the city that's an absolute enemy to him, that could have just easily crushed him, they believed him because there's an authentic kind of authority in what Jonah is saying. They recognize it as the truth of God, and they recognize that the truth of God is true in Jonah's life, and it's being reflected out of his life that he is a dead man resurrected. Okay? And he speaks boldly out of that. As Christians, we have to be willing to share boldly the hope that we have in Christ. We have to be willing to do that, to share boldly the hope that we have in Christ. Now, when we talk about the term evangelism, a lot of times, even within the Christian context, even within very like Christianized groups of people, that term makes people roll their eyes, okay? Or it's confusing, or it brings this kind of, this kind of fear with it. And we're like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to do, okay? And there's all of this wrapped up with it. Partly because people have tried to turn it into kind of a gimmick type thing, right? And there's all of these different little gimmicks and stuff that people try to teach you to do to, to try to like pop evangelism on somebody, right? Like they're just walking down the street and all of a sudden you're laying out the Roman road to them. And they're like, what? Okay, well, what's going on? I just met you, okay? And so there's that kind of culture. And so we teach people to kind of like, like turn every conversation into an opportunity to present this kind of thing, right? Like, hey, I was watching the final four last night. Did you see it? No, I didn't see the final four. I'm preparing for the final judgment. All right? <laughs> Don't do that, okay? That is, that is terrible, okay? There's a writer named John Acuff that calls that the Jesus juke, okay? Don't do the Jesus juke into evangelism on somebody, all right? Don't do that, Okay? Um, so, but, but we need to create this culture of evangelism in the church, even though a lot of times it is, has all this different stuff attached to it, right? That clouds it up. Let's clarify it today. Let's clarify it. Let's cut through. Here's the deal. The term evangelism, regardless of how that strikes you, here's the deal. The term evangelism is taken from a Greek word, called euangelion, okay? Euangelion, if you look at it spelled out, it, it looks like evangelism. You can match it up, okay? It, 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 you can see clearly that's where we've taken it from, euangelion. What does that word mean? That word simply means good news. 
good news. It's the word that we often in English translate into the term gospel. Gospel. Here's what evangelism is. It is simply sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the difference that he has made in your life. Let's not complicate it with gimmicks, okay? Let's not undercut it by adding like, like some kind of false kind of stuff to it, okay? Let's not do that. Here's what it is, simply sharing the good news of Jesus and what he has done in your life. Three ways for you to share the good news. Number one, live a life that sparks questions and creates natural opportunity. Live a compelling life, okay, so that people can see there is something different about you, and it raises the question, and it creates a natural opportunity, okay? Number two, be prepared to answer the questions when they're raised, okay? And be prepared and awake for the natural opportunity, okay? If someone starts to ask you a question about why you live the way you live and they can see something different in your life, don't just be all kind of like, well, you know, I'm just, uh, uh," right? And keep the curiosity there, okay? Because then that just becomes about you being an interesting person. It's more than that, isn't it? Isn't it deeper than that? So you've got to take the next step and you've got to point them to Jesus. Number three, how do you do that? What do you say when people ask you the question? There's no way for us to prepare you in this kind of environment for all of the apologetics and and things that you would need to know to answer every question that people have about Christianity and Jesus. So just remember this. Just remember this. When someone asks you, simply tell them what Jesus has done for you. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Then it's going to come from the most authentic place. Then it doesn't become a bait and switch marketing trick. That is not evangelism. That is not evangelism. It comes from a very natural place. It's a person that you have a relationship with and you're able to share with them what Jesus has done for you. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. Live a life that sparks questions and creates natural opportunity. Be prepared to answer the question and awake to the natural opportunity by simply telling them what Jesus has done in your life. That's it. That's it. We can go deeper at some point. We will. But that's what you need to know today. Share the good news. Share the good news. If Jesus hasn't affected your life and Christianity is simply just kind of a cultural label that you identify with, then don't share that. Don't share that, okay? We don't want that to spread. What we want to spread is the authentic transformation that happens when Jesus grabs a hold of somebody's life. Simply tell them what Jesus has done for you. That's it. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul challenges us with this. He simply says, shine like stars. Shine like stars. I love this. There's so much encouragement and so much freedom in Paul choosing that analogy to shine like stars. Because Paul doesn't say, um, be like a wildfire. 
Okay, Paul doesn't say be an earthquake or be a whirlwind. This kind of like uh, super dramatic kind of stuff, right? These, these like earth-shaking moments. Paul says, shine like stars. It's simple, isn't it? It's humble, but it's a consistent, present light when the darkness is the deepest. That's what the stars are. They are always there. They are not moments of greatness. They are always there. Consistent, present light when the darkness is the deepest. We don't need you to be a lightning bolt. There is enough flash already. We don't need you to boom like thunder. There's already plenty of noise. We need you to shine like thunder stars, to let your life reveal an authentic transformation from your encounter with Jesus Christ. That brings it all the way back to the repenting. That's what they saw in Jonah. Nineveh's revival began with Jonah's repentance because it was real. His life had turned, right? His life had turned. And then what he spoke came from a place of authentic authority. Wrapping up with this last statement. This is a quote from a pastor named Albert Day. None of you have heard of him. All right. I guarantee you came across this very obscure. Just came across this a couple of weeks ago. I'd never heard of this man in my life. All right. He was a pastor in the 1960s in this exotic land known as Ohio. And uh, Albert Day says this. Let this hit you. True holiness is a witness that cannot be ignored. Holy love is a phenomenon to which even the skeptic pays tribute. The power of a life where Christ is exalted would arrest and subdue those who are bored to tears by our thin version of Christianity. That is what we need. That is what we need in this town. That's what we need on this campus. That's what we need in your workplace. That's what we need in your home and in your family. That's what we need. We need the real thing. True holiness. A witness that cannot be ignored. Holy love, a phenomenon to which even the skeptic pays tribute. Power of a life where Christ is exalted, that arrests and subdues those who are bored to tears by our thin version of Christianity. Jesus, help us as your people to walk in life as resurrected women and men. Dead women and men brought to life through you. Moving with a word for people that has an authentic authority to it because we've experienced it ourselves. True holiness, holy love, a life that is humbled where Christ is exalted. 
subduing and arresting people who are desperate to see the real thing. Help us to be that. In your name we pray. Amen.